Thanks be to God indeed. Good to be here with you this morning. Let me take a sip of this water and then we'll pray. Father, we are so grateful that you gave your only son for us, that you condescended to dwell with sinners such as we are. How kind you are, O Lord. If you left it up to us to take that first step of reconciliation, we would have never come. We would have all experienced the wrath that we deserve. So we thank you that you have come to dwell with us. And we thank you further that not only did you give your only son for us, but you have left us with your complete revelation in the word. And we ask, Father, that as we look at this passage, that you would help us to honor you in our response to it. Help us by your spirit to not just understand it intellectually, but be molded by it as your spirit works in us through it. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. We are now in our 13th and final sermon through this wonderful letter called First Peter, throughout which we have been tracing this theme of suffering well for Christ. We've been encouraged to suffer with a living hope and to be holy in the midst of our suffering, loving one another. We've been challenged to be godly in a godless world, to be good citizens in a godless country, good servants to godless masters, and to be godly spouses. We've seen that we're going to suffer for doing good, but that one day we will be rescued. We've seen what it's like to be the church in a world full of suffering, and how we are sharing in Christ's sufferings. And finally, last week, we learned about pastoring well in the midst of suffering. So today, as we reach a bittersweet end to this sermon series, we see some final qualities that a Christian who is suffering well for Christ should espouse. A Christian suffering well for Christ should be humble, watchful, and hopeful. Humble, watchful, and hopeful. Now, before we go into this text, let's just consider for a moment how the opposite of these qualities would be contrary to suffering well for Christ. The prideful person doesn't suffer well for Christ. The prideful person acts poorly towards other people, thus asking for even more suffering. The prideful person doesn't rely on God and instead lives in constant self-obsession and anxiety. Neither does the complacent person suffer well for Christ. The complacent person is an easy target for the devil and succumbs to temptation regularly. The complacent person is like a soldier on a raging battlefield who is completely oblivious to the fact that he's in a war. Neither does the hopeless person suffer well for Christ, the hopeless person. The hopeless person focuses only on the moment, the trials and the temptations of the now. The hopeless person doesn't look forward to anything or work toward anything that is ultimately meaningful. So these qualities are contrary to suffering well for Christ, and they're also most unhappy. Prideful, complacent, and hopeless people aren't happy. 
Those are not pleasurable ways to live. You might think that at least it'd be satisfying to be prideful, but it's really not satisfying to be prideful. The prideful person is never satisfied, but is instead dependent on status, self-worth, and the acceptance of other people for their happiness. As always, the way that God calls us to live is the better way. It's the better way. And if we would suffer well for Christ, and if we would live life abundantly, then we would be humble, watchful, and hopeful. Now, before we get to the main course of our sermon, we're going to eat our dessert first, okay? Why are we doing this? We want to make sure that we cover every single verse in this letter. But the closing salutations, verses 12 through 14, don't really contribute to the main point of the passage. So before we we cover verses 5b through 11, let's go down to the end of the book and just go over Peter's wrap-up of this incredible letter. Here's what he writes in verses 12 through 14. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. And so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. So it's possible that this Silvanus in verse 12, also known as Silas, was the one who scribed this letter as Peter dictated it, or perhaps he was the one who delivered this letter, and this is Peter's commendation of Silvanus. Whatever the case, Peter regards Silvanus as a faithful brother. This has been a brief letter exhorting and declaring to the audience, including us, that this is the true grace of God. Now, we've been mainly tracing the theme of suffering throughout this letter, but also throughout this letter, we've noticed that we have seen the grace of God over and over again. Throughout this book, we have seen that he has caused us to be born again to a living hope, He is guarding us by his power for salvation. He has called us to be children. He has redeemed us from our futile ways. He has purified us through the precious blood of Christ. He has called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. He took we who were not a people and made us a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. He has given us an imperishable inheritance, joy in the midst of trials, the promise of salvation, the Holy Spirit to empower and guide us, the hope of a future revelation of Jesus Christ, a living and enduring word, a sure foundation in Jesus Christ, the privilege of being able to proclaim his excellencies, the privilege of being partakers of Christ's sufferings, grace to the humble, the promise of future exaltation, the freedom to cast our anxieties on him, the ability to resist the devil and stand firm in the faith, the promise of eternal glory, and the assurance of his faithfulness. This is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it, verse 12 says. 
And finally, he gives greetings from probably the church in Rome, whom he calls in verse 13, she who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, as well as from Mark. Then he calls the church to greet one another with the kiss of love, which was a common expression of brotherly love at the time. And the church, historically, we see that they have actually officially adopted greeting one another with a holy kiss as part of their liturgy. And he bids all of the believers to whom he's writing peace. So that's our dessert. Now that we've had our dessert, we're going to move back to our main entree. And remember, this is what we're going to observe from this text, Lord willing, okay? If we would suffer well for Christ, then we would be humble, watchful, and hopeful. Humble, watchful, and hopeful. Let's see how each of these ideas is drawn out of our passage this morning, starting with number one, humble, humble. After exhorting the elders, the pastors of the church, to pastor or shepherd the flock well, and the members to be subject to these pastors or elders, Peter writes this in the second half of verse 5. Notice, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So we see here an analogy of virtues being compared to clothing. And this isn't something that only Peter does. Uh, Paul also uses this metaphor. He, Paul tells the Colossian Christians, for example, in Colossians 3, 9 through 10, these Colossian Christians who have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self to Colossians 3, verses 12 and 14, put on then, put on as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. And above all of these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So Peter and Paul both use this picture that we are to put off the sinfulness of the old self. Take off those old, ratty, nasty garments, put them off, and put on the virtues of Christ. Put on Christ. In this case, in our passage, we are called specifically to clothe ourselves with humility. Humility. And we are all, we are all called to clothe ourselves with humility. Look at verse 2, those words, all of you. So remember, he just talked to the pastors, and then he quickly addressed the members, or the youngers, and then he says, all of you. Pastors are to clothe themselves with humility. Members are to clothe themselves with humility. So even though pastors are given a position of authority, we are still to be humble. We are still to be humble. We are to lead, brother pastors, as servants, servants of Christ, but also servants of our brothers and sisters. And members are likewise to humbly submit to our leadership. But notice from this picture of clothe yourselves that there is some intentionality with it. There's intentionality. By the grace of God, humility is something that we can choose to clothe ourselves with. Otherwise, it wouldn't be an exhortation to us. It wouldn't be a commandment. We can choose to clothe ourselves with humility. Humility is a choice, just like love is a choice, joy is a choice, etc., it may be difficult to put on humility, 
But by the Holy Spirit, it's possible for the Christian. Not only is it possible, it's required. The Lord commands us, through Peter, to clothe ourselves with humility. And notice also the direction of this humility. We are to clothe ourselves, verse 5, with humility toward one another. Toward one another. You see, in this case, humility isn't isolated. Humility isn't just, in this case, something that you do at home alone. This humility is relational. It's not humility in general. It's the idea of acting humbly with each other. Acting humbly with each other. Apostle, the Apostle Paul describes it like this in Philippians 2, verses 3 through 4. Philippians 2, 3 through 4. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So importing Paul's definitions into our passage, being clothed with humility toward one another looks like counting others as more significant than yourselves. Everyone in this room is more significant than you if you are clothing yourself with humility. That's what that looks like practically. You look around this room and you say, he's more significant than I am. She is more significant than I am. So is he. So is she. Being clothed with humility towards others means that you count everyone a higher rank than you are. Practically speaking, that looks like, according to Paul, doing nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Nothing. If you are humble towards others, then you're not going to be about your own advancement. You're not only going to look at your own interests, but also to the interests of others. So now, what are some examples of this? <clears throat> One example in the context of a local church is laying down your preferences for other people. There are some churches that have straight up fights about what kind of music to play. And it's not out of any theological reasons, but just preferences. So imagine a church in which the older folks like the old hymns and the younger folks like the newer songs. Everyone being clothed in humility looks like this. It looks like the older folks saying, well, the younger generation really seems to be helped and encouraged by these newer songs. So let's, let's get more of those. And the younger generation saying, yes, thank you, but the older generation is helped by the old hymns. So let's make sure to sing those also. Being clothed in humility is like that. It's preferring others over yourself. What's another example? Here's another example. It's a major one. I know that some of you are actually going through this right now. So just please give me the benefit of the doubt that I'm not talking about you, okay? That I'm not picking on you or trying to use this pulpit in a bullyish kind of way. But just consider what's being said here and ask the Spirit to give you wisdom. Another example of clothing yourself with humility is staying with your church even when it's hard. Staying with your church even when it's hard. How common it is in our current context to leave your church because you're unhappy and disgruntled 
It is so common, in fact, that I had lunch with pastors from like-minded churches the other day, and we were talking about members like they were draft picks, like they just go from church to church, like we know all of them. That's bizarre. It shouldn't be that way. That's not humble. That's acting out of selfish ambition or conceit. I'm just not growing here, or I don't feel loved here, or this church is just not the right fit for me, are selfish ambitions. You have not been placed here by God for yourself. You're here with a gift to help others grow. You're here to love others, not be loved by others. You're you're here to serve others, not be served by others. Now, of course, you should be loved and served by your fellow members. That's true. But that's not why you should be here. That's not what you should be here for. You should be here to love and serve Christ and his bride humbly, period. Matthew 20, 28, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. No one deserves to be served more than Jesus Christ. And yet, that's not what he came for. He came to serve. And he calls you to serve rather than demand being served. Every time that you complain about the failures of your pastors or fellow members to love and serve you, then you have not clothed yourself with humility towards others. Now, if a brother or sister has failed to love and serve you, that is a problem and it needs to be addressed. It needs to be addressed appropriately, but it needs to be addressed from a position of humility, of counting the other person as more significant than yourself. It needs to be addressed not out of selfishness, but out of love and service toward the other person. The focus needs to be to win your brother over and make sure that he or she doesn't remain in sin. So sins in churches, failures in churches do need to be addressed. They do. But one of the least humble things that you can do is abandon your brothers and sisters. Your church needs you. They need your spiritual gifts. They need you to speak the truth in love. So clothe yourself in humility toward them. Now the reason that Paul gives in Philippians for why we ought to be humble is that Christ exemplified that for us. Christ exemplified that for us. He humbled himself by taking on a human nature and in his humanity obeying his Father to the point of death, even death on a cross. And while Peter would fully agree with Paul's reasoning for why we should be humble ourselves, Peter presents a different reason for why we ought to clothe ourselves with humility toward one another. He says at the end of verse 5, look at the end of verse 5, For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Peter here is quoting Proverbs 3.34, specifically from the Septuagint, uh, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible that was commonly used in his time. But what does it mean that God opposes the proud? What that means is that God is against those who are proud. God is against the boastful. 
He is against the arrogant. Isn't that motivation enough to be careful to not be prideful before him? God opposes them. I don't want to be in that group. Consider Haman, who in his pride plotted to destroy all the Jews only to be hanged on the very gallows that he prepared for them. Consider Nebuchadnezzar, who boasted of his greatness and ended up being a human lawnmower for seven years. Consider the Pharisees, who were proud of their legalistic observance of the law, but were called by our Savior a brood of vipers. Consider Herod Agrippa, who accepted the praise and worship of his people and then was struck by an angel and eaten by worms. God opposes the proud. And that's good enough reason to clothe ourselves with humility toward one another. But is a Christian to live in constant fear of God's opposition? No, not per se. Not per se. But we should live before God in a healthy reverence and awe of his majesty and holiness. Though we have been saved from God's wrath, by his grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Though we have been adopted into his family and given the grace, the right to call him Abba. Though the Holy Spirit has been given to us as a guarantee of our inheritance. And though nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, we still ought not to take God's grace for granted or presume upon his mercy. On the contrary, we are to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. We are to offer God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, knowing that he is a consuming fire. We are to fear God, who can cast both body and soul into hell. We should also be aware that because he loves us, he will discipline us. So though we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, we still need to acknowledge, brothers and sisters, that our God is not a God to be trifled with. Amen? Thus, when we read the words that are written to Christians, by the way, in verse 5, God opposes the proud, that should send a shiver up our spine and motivate us not to be proud. But on the other hand, he gives grace to the humble. Verse 5, he gives grace to the humble. This is those to whom God gives grace. It is those who think little of themselves, or rather, more accurately, think of themselves rightly in light of who God is. The humble person recognizes his utter dependency on God, and it is to the humble that God gives grace. Well, what grace is being talked about here? This is just generally talking about God's favor, God's assistance, towards someone, when a person realizes that he is nothing without God, when he realizes that he needs God, it is then that God is pleased to show favor toward him. But does that make grace earned then? Does the person earn grace by being humble? No. In fact, the person who thinks that they deserve God's grace because they're humble <laughs> is actually not humble at all, right? They're not humble. In fact, instead, it is the person who realizes 
that he deserves nothing from God, who God is pleased to bless. Our God is dispositioned to show grace. His desire is to show grace. And in one sense, he actually does show grace to all people everywhere, every day. Something that we call common grace, the fact that they get to breathe and eat and love and marry, etc. He shows them common grace, but God is also just, and he opposes the proud. And it's not as if pride is just a sin in isolation. Pride is the root of many other sins. Romans 1, 28 through 32 says this, Romans 1, 28 through 32. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind not to not do what ought to be done or to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Is not the essence of pride they did not see fit to acknowledge God? Is not Pride Month actually accidentally aptly named? Now, the problem is that that was all of us. That was all of us. Romans 3 says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And what that implies is that we were all proud. Therefore, God opposed all of us. Now, how did God solve this problem for us? Well, first, he gave his only son for us proud sinners. He gave his only son for us. His son lived a perfect life and he died on the cross for sinners like us. And then he rose from the grave, victorious over sin and death. And then he gave us the Holy Spirit to humble us before him. When the Holy Spirit gave us new life and he gave us eyes to see, he made us humble and therefore disposed to receive the grace of God in Jesus Christ. You see, at the heart of faith in Christ is humility, i.e. poorness in spirit. Those who continue to reject Christ do so because of pride. They're convinced they don't need God. They don't need the Savior whom he has sent. But those who receive him, those who believe in Jesus Christ, are those who have been humbled by God. And in that way, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. But this humility is ongoing. The humility is ongoing. We weren't only humbled in the beginning of our walk, in the moment of justification. We continue to be made humble through the rest of our lives in the process of sanctification. Because in the flesh, we continue to struggle with pride. And therefore, we kindle the opposition of God in the form of discipline. But in the spirit, we can actually clothe ourselves with humility. This is possible. God does not command something that he does not equip us to do. 
And therefore, Peter writes in verse 6, Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Because God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble, and because we are in desperate needs of, need of God's grace, we are to humble ourselves. Again, humility is a choice. We either decide to walk by the flesh and not acknowledge God, or we can walk by the Spirit and recognize that we are nothing without Him. Notice that phrase in verse 6, mighty hand of God. It speaks to God's power. It speaks to His sovereignty. And it reminds us of the Exodus. Exodus 3, verses 19 through 20 says this. Exodus 3, 19 through 20. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. Did not God in the Exodus oppose the proud but give grace to the humble? He destroyed the formidable army of the most prideful and powerful man on earth, the Pharaoh of Egypt, and he let out hundreds of thousands, perhaps millions of humbled Israelites. And is not that exodus a picture of what we're going through now? Are we not exiles in this land, suffering under the hands of those who oppose God? Are we not waiting for God to take us from here and bring us into our imperishable inheritance? Just as Moses and the Israelites depended fully on God to take them out of Egypt, so are we fully dependent on God to deliver us from this world. We are to humble ourselves under his mighty hand. And it's to the end, verse 6, that at the proper time he may exalt you. God took a multitude of slaves from Egypt and made them a mighty nation, Israel. Under King David, by the grace of God, of course, Israel expanded its borders, gaining control of territories that extend from the Euphrates River to the border of Egypt, the very land they were delivered from. Under King Solomon, Israel experienced a period of economic prosperity and international influence. And all of that, remember, came from a group of slaves in Egypt. God opposed the proud and gave grace to the humble. At the proper time, he exalted them. However, Israel's humility was not consistent. Even in the wilderness, they just got out of slavery. They grumbled against God, longing for the meat in Egypt. And it cost the first generation the blessing of being able to enter into the promised land. Their pride also brought them to the age of the judges, where everyone was just doing what was right in their own eyes, a time of great violence, a time of great debauchery. And then after David and Solomon, the nation split in two, with one nation abandoning God almost completely, and the other nation just kind of going up and down throughout history, but constantly in a downward trend. The pridefulness of the northern kingdom eventually got them obliterated, and the pridefulness of the southern kingdom eventually got them exiled. Once again, 
the nation was humbled and then delivered. And then once they were brought back, pride continued to creep up again until God stopped speaking to them for 400 years before Christ. So you see, the exodus and the establishment of the kingdom of Israel were pointing forward to something greater, namely our exodus from this world when he returns and the consummation of his establishment of our eternal kingdom in which we'll live, one in which we will eternally remain the humble people on which God gives grace. Just as he exalted Israel after the exodus, so he will exalt us at the proper time. This is the end to which we're heading. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God in the meantime. Here's something that goes hand in hand with humbling ourselves before him. Read verse 7. Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. When you're being prideful, you don't bring your anxieties to God. You're convinced that you don't really need his assistance. But on the other hand, someone who has humbled himself under the mighty hand of God recognizes that the first and best thing that he can do when he's anxious is to cast his cares upon God, cast all of his anxieties on God. Ultimately, we are powerless in this world. It is only God who can do all that he pleases. And he is pleased to listen to the prayers of his people. Why would we not cast our anxieties on him? But furthermore, not only is he powerful to do so, but notice from this verse 7, he also cares for us. Isn't that an amazing thought? The God who spoke this universe that we cannot measure into existence, the God who is holy, 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 cares for you. Cast all your anxieties on him, brothers and sisters, in humility. Pray to him about all of your anxieties and leave the outcomes to him. This is the one, this is what the one who suffers well for Christ looks like. Humble. Humble towards his brothers and sisters in Christ. Humble under the mighty hand of God, casting all his anxieties on the God who cares for him. The one who places himself above his brothers and sisters and acts arrogantly before the Lord, not only fails to glorify God, but he's also miserable in this world. God's way is always better for you. Be humble, brothers and sisters, for his glory and for your joy. The second quality of the person suffering well for Christ in our passages, number two, watchful, watchful. Verse eight says this, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Well, first, what does it mean to be sober-minded? The idea here is being alert. It's a metaphor that's drawn from actual sobriety, okay? Because when a person is drunk, they lose sight of the world that's around them. Now, the word isn't talking about being literally sober, but being sober-minded, thinking clearly. Paired with sober-minded, Peter adds in verse 8, be watchful. And there is a lot of overlap between this idea of being 
watchful and being sober-minded. But perhaps a key distinction here is passiveness and activeness. Being sober-minded is simply thinking clearly because you're not under the influence of anything. But being watchful is keeping your eye out for danger. A good analogy might be uh, a bodyguard who is constantly aware of his surroundings. He's sober-minded. But at the same time, he has his head on a swivel. He's looking around for actual threats that could do his client harm. That's watchful. So why do we need to be both sober-minded and watchful? Verse 8, here's why. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. We have an adversary. We have an opponent. We have an enemy. And it's not people, by the way. It's not a political party. It's the devil. It's the devil. The devil is a real and personal being. The devil is a fallen angel who has become the chief adversary of God and his people. Now, he's not anywhere near as powerful as God. God could and will destroy him in an instant. But God allows him to continue on according to God's greater purposes. And though God is much more powerful than Satan, which is an understatement, Satan is much more powerful than us. What is it that Luther says in A Mighty Fortress? Um, His wrath and power are great and armed with cruel hate. On earth is not his equal. Luther has it right. The devil is actively working to deceive and tempt humanity. He's seeking to undermine God's plan of redemption. He won't be able to, but try he will. The devil tempts people to sin. The devil sows doubt. The devil leads people away from God's truth. He is what the Bible calls the ruler of this present evil age. And he has authority over the ungodly systems of the world. Now, through Christ's life, death, and resurrection, Satan has been decisively defeated. Jesus' work has overcome the power of sin and the devil. But the devil still has limited influence in the world. One day, the devil will be fully and finally defeated and finally judged. But that day is not yet. And therefore, we need to be sober-minded. We need to be watchful. Our adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Now, we know that, ultimately, the devil will not successfully destroy the soul of a Christian. We know this. Romans 8, 38-39, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. On earth is not his equal, sure, but Satan cannot separate us from God's love in Christ. But he can harm us. Satan can tempt us to sin. Now, while it's true that plenty of temptation comes from within, comes from the flesh, Temptation also comes externally. That's why Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 3, 5, When I could bear it no longer, 
I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. So Paul was under no illusion that somehow the devil was completely powerless. How might the devil tempt us without appearing to us or whispering audibly into our ears? Well, remember, first of all, he is the father of lies. John 8:44 says that he's the father of lies. All of the lies that are out in the world right now that speak contrarily to the word of God, all of the lies that Christians are tempted to believe come from the devil. He generates the lies, and our flesh is tempted to believe those lies. The devil also capitalizes on human desires and weaknesses, just as he did when he tempted Jesus in the wilderness in Matthew 4. He appealed to Jesus' hunger after 40 days of fasting and his desire for power and authority, which he would be given, but not then. Do you think he might try to exploit your own desires and your weaknesses? The devil also creates doubt and distortion around God's word. That's been his MO with God's people. Satan cast doubt on what God said when Satan spoke with Eve in the garden. Did God really say that? No, God didn't say that. And when he tempted Jesus, he quoted and misused scripture. And how much confusion there is out in the world about the word of God. Satan prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. He can't destroy us, but he can cause us problems. So be sober-minded. Be watchful. Verse 9 continues, Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. We are to, verse 9 says, resist him. We are to stand and face him. We are not to yield to him or his temptations. We are to, Ephesians 4.27, give no opportunity to the devil. We are instead to, Ephesians 6.11-13, th- put on our spiritual armor against him. Namely, truth, righteousness, peace, faith, our salvation, and the word of God. And we are to pray, pray, pray. That is how we resist the devil. And we are to resist him, verse 9, firm in our faith. Firm in our faith. The only way we can stand and face the devil is by placing our trust firmly in God. We can only rely on God alone and the resources that he provides us. Now this phrase, your faith, in verse 9, could also be talking about being firm in the doctrines that have been handed down to us in the word of God. So how do we resist the devil's lies? We do it by knowing the truth. We do it by knowing the truth. Certainly, you really can't separate these two ideas, though, of your faith. Trusting God means trusting what he has said. Peter adds something else that is supposed to encourage us. The second half of verse 9 says, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. This is an interesting idea. Why would the fact that other Christians are suffering like we are, and worse, around the world, be encouraging to us? It's because there is something about the human condition in which when we think we are the only ones going through something, 
it's worse. It feels worse for us. Similarly, in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, Paul tells us that the temptations that we face are common. You're not the only one struggling with this temptation that you're going through. You're not alone. Christ suffered first. We join him in his suffering. And our brothers and sisters throughout the world are likewise suffering with us. So we are to resist the devil who is prowling around like a roaring lion. We are to stand firm in the faith together with all of the brothers and sisters in Christ throughout the world who are also enduring suffering. But in order to do all of that, we need to be watchful. We need to understand the kind of situation that we're in. You can't resist the devil if you're not aware that he's after you. Now, the devil is not omnipresent. He can't be in all places at all times, but he has influence all over the world. And there are many more demons besides him. Do you even acknowledge these realities? If you don't recognize that there's an enemy, you're not going to have your defenses up. You won't be on the lookout. You won't pray as a Savior taught, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We have an adversary, brothers and sisters. Suffering well for Christ includes being watchful, vigilant, and prayerful against a very real adversary. So the person who suffers well for Christ will be humble, watchful, and finally, number three, hopeful. Hopeful. Verse 10 says this, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. That's a wonderful phrase at the beginning of verse 10. After you have suffered a little while, a little while. The suffering that we endure is according to God's perfect will and timing. We don't suffer anything that God himself did not decide would happen for our good and for his glory. Neither do we suffer for any longer than he wills. But no matter how long or how difficult our sufferings are, it's only, verse 10, for a little while. Or as Paul puts it, it's momentary. Love these words. 2 Corinthians 4.17 says this, This light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Now you might be going through some intense suffering today. And perhaps you've been going through it for years actually. So maybe you might scoff at this idea that your suffering is light and momentary. But dear Christian, when you've been with the Lord for 10,000 years, you'll realize just how momentary it was compared to the time that you've spent in glory and how light it was compared to the fullness of joy that you'll experience in his presence. You're only going to suffer for a little while. And after that, the God of all grace is going to do something for you. God of all grace is what Peter calls him. God being gracious is the source of all grace. He has shown us immense grace already. 
And amazingly, he's going to give us even more grace in the end. He is the one, verse 10, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ. Essentially, he's referring to heaven. Is not heaven being in the presence of God in his glory for all eternity? This is what God has called us to. And he has called us to that, verse 10 says, in Christ. It is because you have been united with Christ, covered in his righteousness, washed by his blood, that you're going to be able to enter into God's eternal glory forever and ever, assuming that you believe in him. If you don't believe in him this morning, then God's eternal glory should be frightening to you. You're going to behold his glory, not as one who has been made right with him, but as one who has sinned against him all your life. Today is the day to believe in his son whom he has sent. Today is the day. And if you do, then you also will have been called to his eternal glory in Christ. Brothers and sisters, since he has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, he himself is going to be the one to restore you, to confirm you, to strengthen you, and establish you. He's going to, verse 10, restore you. You may be beaten up. You may be bruised by the various trials that you experience in this world. You may be weary, but he's going to restore you. He's going to renew you. He's going to make you right. He's also going to confirm you. You may be wobbly in this world, but he's going to make you stand firm for all eternity. He's going to strengthen you. You may feel weak in the world, but in the end, you're going to be made strong. He has used the weak in the world to shame the strong, but one day, he will make the weak eternally strong. He's also going to establish you. He's going to put you on a firm foundation, which is his very self. All the weakness and all the weariness that we experience in this world will be reversed after you have suffered for a little while. Take heart, my brothers and sisters. The struggle in this world is short. The pain is passing. The toil is temporary. God is going to make all things right and new. He is the God of all grace. He has called you to his eternal glory, and he is going to get you all the way there. And he himself will do it. Verse 11, To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Dominion refers to power and authority. And in this doxology, this praise, Peter acknowledges that all dominion is God's forever and ever. And on the one hand, this doxology is a praise to God that has nothing to do with us. But on the other hand, it's the doxology that gives us great hope. It gives us great hope. It is because God will have the dominion forever and ever that our hope is sure that everything that he has promised for our future is guaranteed. Imagine for just a moment, not too long, that we served a God whose dominion was contingent upon his keeping that dominion. 
all that he has promised us, we will have so long as he maintains power. But this God, in our imaginary situation, could lose his reign. He could be overthrown by another God or perhaps the devil. How stressful that would be. We would need to make sure to do all that we can to make sure that we keep our God in power. Thank the true and living God that this is not the case. His dominion is not contingent on anything but himself. He will have dominion forever and ever. And because that's the case, then we can know for certain that he himself will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish us in his eternal glory. And we say, verse 11, Amen. For it is true. It is certain. In a world where everything can feel unsure, everything feels uncertain, this is sure. To him be dominion forever and ever. This has been a recurring theme in this book. If you would suffer well for Christ, you need to be end times minded. Don't shy away from eschatology. You need it in this world. You need eschatology. You have to be forward looking. You have to be hopeful. Sermon in a sentence. If we would suffer well for Christ, we must be humble, watchful, and hopeful. Remember, brothers and sisters, that humility is a choice. It's a Christ-like virtue that by the strength of the Holy Spirit we can clothe ourselves with. We should be humble toward one another, knowing that God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. We should also humble ourselves under God's mighty hand so that at just the right time, he'll exalt us. And remember that part of humility is casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Remember also that the devil is real. Be sober-minded, be watchful. He prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour, resist him. Be firm in your faith, realizing that we're suffering at the same time that our brothers and sisters around the world are suffering. And then finally, remember that after we've suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who has called us to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish us. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for this book that you have walked us through by your grace and mercy. And we ask, O oh Lord, that you would once again help us to suffer well for your Son. Help us, Lord, to be all of these things, to be humble toward one another, but more importantly, in your sight, that we would be humble. That we would recognize that you are God and we are not. Help us also, O oh Lord, to be watchful. Help us to be constantly in the state of alert and spiritual warfare so that we might be able to resist our enemy all by the strength that you give us and the resources that you give us. And help us, O oh Lord, to look forward. Help us to be hopeful. Help us to rightly understand the relationship of the end of the world to our own present struggles. We look forward, O oh Lord, to receiving our eternal and imperishable inheritance in your Son. Come, Lord Jesus. All of this we ask in the name of our Savior and Redeemer, Jesus Christ. Amen.